0: Spirit, we do praise you and we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see. Father, we thank you for this wonderful plan of salvation that does not just make us right with you, but actually allows us to live for you because you gave us the Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see this clearly in the text today. I pray that I would faithfully preach what's in your word. Lord, that all those that you, by your sovereign hand, have brought together this morning to look at this particular passage. That Lord, we would be faithful to listen, and apply, and see your son Christ, and be changed by your word. Would you do that, Father, for your glory, for our good as you transform us into the likeness of your great son. It's in his name we pray, amen. So if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. This morning we're going to look at verses 15 through 17. So John 14, 15 through 17. Um, I don't have an introduction this morning. This morning we're going to jump right in. We're going to look at the passage and then consider uh, what it has to say. So here we are. We're still with Christ. He's teaching his disciples. He just got done telling them to ask anything in his name, which, you remember, was not about you. This was first and foremost about Christ, about who he is and what he is able to do and what his purpose is. And of course, if we were to ask anything in his name, it would be for his glory. It would be in order to serve him. As Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, we're to seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. And with that in mind, we come to verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. First, this morning, I want to ask the question what does a relationship with Jesus look like? What does a relationship with Jesus look like? And to answer that, we've got to think about what Jesus said here about loving him. So the relationship with Jesus looks like loving him, first and foremost. But what does he say? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Many years after this, the Apostle John is going to tell the church, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So John, as an old man, Many years after Jesus says this to the the disciples, John himself had learned the joy and the benefit of living a life of love and obedience to Jesus. So in our relationship with Jesus, there is a deep fundamental connection between loving him and obeying him, isn't there? First, I want you to notice this is not just a life of cold obedience, is it? I have known professing Christians who have worked hard to obey every command, every command of God, but there was no love in their actions. There was no love in their hearts for doing it. Pride? Yeah, there was plenty of pride in their hearts. Judgment of others? Most of the time, that was present too. But there wasn't actual love, a focus on him, a a setting aside of the self for the focus on this greater person, this love that was set towards Jesus, who's worthy of it. He's worthy of every bit of it. We've seen that already in John, haven't we? Remember Mary and, and how worthy Jesus was of her love. She was willing to give all because of his worthiness. He's worthy of our love as well. It should excite our hearts what he has done for us. But so often, Christians, we can focus on obedience as though our relationship to Jesus is simply one of obedience. That's it, that's what you have to do. You must obey him. But there's no love. And, and the motivation wasn't a heart that desired Jesus, that loved him, the, the motivation wasn't a heart that had tasted the kindness of Jesus in loving us. The mercy of Jesus. We just got done in Sunday school. We, we spent the whole Sunday school uh, looking at hell in scripture. No one spoke more about hell or more clearly about hell than Jesus himself. Hell is an awful place, it is a place of eternal torment, eternal, there's no end to the torment that happens in hell, it is a terrible place. Christian, Jesus has rescued you from that eternal torment. You deserved it, this is one of the things that we talked about that we, in fact, deserved. It's not just that hell makes sense. We went from the holiness of God, that he's perfect, he's pure, he's righteous, and we're not. We're in sin, we're dead and condemned, and so rightly, there is a punishment there. But we made the point in Sunday school, it's not just a logical progression. It's not just that hell is logical because we've sinned against God. It's more than that. Hell is appropriate. It's right. Jonathan Edwards, in a great sermon called The Eternal Torment of Hell, talks about how if, if sin is infinite, and if God infinitely hates sin, then the action that he takes against sin is infinite, ought to be infinite. This is what we deserve as sinners. But Christian, you're freed from that. You're free from that because of Jesus, because Jesus, while we were enemies of God's, and that word enemy is in every sense. God hates the wicked. Psalm 11 says that his soul hates the wicked. Fire, sulfur, and burning wind are a portion of their cup. That's what it is to be an enemy of God. But while we were enemies like that, do you know what Jesus did on our behalf? He died and took that punishment, that eternal punishment for us. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Do you see how much he has loved us? This is how we know the love of the Father, that the Son came and was our sacrifice. So this isn't just obedience, is it? This is not just doing. Our goal as Christians can't just be to obey. It must first be to love him. This one who has saved us, this one who has called us, this one who has made us his own and like a shepherd with his sheep has tenderly brought us to him and placed us in his flock, in his field. He just got done telling them, I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you in my father's own house, not in some outhouse, not in some field behind the house, but in my father's own house, I'm preparing you a place and I am waiting for you to come. How much does He love us? There's no end. There's no limit. We can't comprehend the love that He has for us because we also, we talked about this this morning, we can't comprehend the level of condemnation that we deserve for our sin. Those things are so far beyond us, but you have to see that if you are focusing only on obedience, you are missing the point. If you love me, comes first. Think of how he's loved us, how he's cared for us, what he has promised us out of that love for us, a new heart, the spirit in us, an eternity with him. We read in Revelation 20 that those whose names are not written in the book of life, they will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, but those who they are in the name of the Lord, they will find rest. This is what he's done for us. This is who he is. He deserves all of our love. And true love, according to God, leads to a changed life. If you truly love someone, that response to them changes us, doesn't it? I mean, we see this in in human ways, in finite human ways. We have children, and having children and the love that we experience for those children and the willingness to do whatever we have to do on their behalf for them, it changes us, doesn't it? It changes us. Our friends, we're just not as available to them anymore because we have to be for our kids now. Life changes. Our priorities change. Our goals change. When we get married, the same thing happens. We meet this person and we love them. And we inevitably change to live our lives with them because we see that we want to not focus on ourselves but on the one that we love. That's just on temporary. If we understand that on an earthly sense, then how much more when we see Christ and we love Christ, would our lives be changed? And what does that look like? It looks like obeying him because we know who he is now, don't we? By this point, we know he's the king. By this point, we know he's God. By this point, we know he's the son of man, the one who was promised. We know who he is and we love him for who he is, not who we would make him to be. We're past that now. We know who he is. We love him for who he is. We're not arguing with him about who he is here and going, ah, oh, Jesus, that's not who you are to me. No, you understand. He's the king. He's the sovereign. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. All enemies are going to be put under his footstool. There's going to come a day when every single knee will bow and every single tongue is going to confess. Whether they do that out of joy and worship, or whether they do that because they cannot help themselves themselves, because of who Jesus is, every single knee is going to bow and every single tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know who he is and we love him. If that's who he is, then of course we're going to obey him, right? What he says is better than what we say. It's right, it's true. I want to obey him in everything. This is what Jesus is getting at. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Now, right after making this connection here between loving him and obeying him, Jesus makes a promise to the disciples. He's going to ask the Father, and he will give a helper to be with them for forever. This is a beautiful picture, isn't it? Because Jesus just said, ask the Father anything in my name and I'll give it to you. But now, here is the shepherd doing exactly what a shepherd ought to do. He's going, you may not know this, but you need this. You wouldn't even know to ask for this necessarily, but I'm going to ask the Father on your behalf for this. And a specific thing I'm gonna ask for is for this helper to come, to be with him for forever. And that actually makes total sense. We know this. How could they obey Jesus? I mean, especially considering they, the disciples here, they don't even fully understand him at this moment. (laughs) They don't fully get what's even happening here. How could they possibly obey him in this moment? The answer is they couldn't. They're not able to obey him in this moment. They're not even able to understand him in this moment. They need help, don't they? They need divine help. And so God will give that help. He'll give us the spirit of God. The spirit of God. This is the second thing that we want to look at this morning is the gift of the spirit here. But before we talk about the spirit of God, I just want to make sure that you see the connection here between loving Jesus, obeying him and the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you have been given the Holy Spirit, if that's what you have been given, it is so that you can do two things. You can love Jesus and obey him. That's what you were given the spirit for. Jesus doesn't just bring up the Spirit here out of nowhere. He's not just, oh, by the way, a rabbit trail. It's intimately connected to this statement, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. J.I. Packer in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, he has a chapter there that's called The Way of Holiness. The Way of Holiness, what a great chapter, right? Tomorrow when you go to work and somebody says, how how was your weekend? You ought to reply and say, well, this weekend I thought a lot about living in the way of holiness, They'll be really excited and be like, ooh, what's that? I want to do that too. This is what Jerry Packer writes. Holiness, thus viewed, is the fruit of the Spirit, displayed as the Christian walks by the Spirit. Holiness is consecrated closeness to God. Holiness is, in essence, obeying God, living to God and for God, imitating God, keeping his law, taking his side against sin, doing righteousness, performing good works, following Christ's teaching and example, worshiping God in the spirit, loving and serving God and men out of reverence for Christ. In relation to God, holiness takes the form of a single-minded passion to please by love and loyalty, devotion and praise. In relation to sin, it takes the form of a resistance movement, a discipline of not gratifying the desires of the flesh, but of putting to death the deeds of the body. Holiness is, in a word, God-taught, spirit-wrought, Christ-likeness. The sum and substance of committed discipleship, the demonstration of faith working by love, the responsive outflow and righteousness of supernatural life from the hearts of those who are born again. The disciples in this moment can't fully understand or obey Jesus, but they will. And that will happen when the spirit comes. The great calling that we have is to love God, which means that we obey him. And so when you and I, we feel hopeless, and we feel helpless to do that. Well, I do, and I assume all of you do as well. When you feel hopeless and you feel helpless to do that, that's not the moment to look within and find the power in you. That's not the time to think about your ability. That's the time to realize that Jesus asked the impossible of his disciples here, and Jesus asks the impossible of you. It's true, we can't have this relationship with Jesus like that, because we're gonna let him down. We love ourselves too much to love him more than us. But then he makes this promise here that would allow you to actually be able to do this. So I wanna ask the question now, how can we love and obey Jesus? How can we love and obey Jesus? And I want us to think here for just a minute about who the Holy Spirit is before we think about what Jesus says here. So I could have written down my own summary of this, but the commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism actually states this so clearly and so beautifully that I just want to read this for you. I want you to pay attention to this description of the one that Jesus is saying will be with the disciples forever, because we need to get this in our minds before we consider what he says. Who is the Spirit? Here we go. The origin of the Bible is to be credited especially to the Holy Spirit. He inspired prophets and writers. It was a work that took centuries. Along with the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit participated in the great work of creation in Genesis 1:2, Job 26-13, Psalm 33:6, He also equipped Bezalel and Aholiab to construct the tabernacle in Exodus 31, 1-11. He supplied Samson with the courage and strength to fight against the Philistines in Judges 14, 6, and 19. He equipped John the Baptist to serve as Jesus's forerunner in Luke 1, 15, and 80. And he fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah eleven two regarding Christ. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Our Savior was conceived by his mother through the Holy Spirit baptized by the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit to contest with Satan in the wilderness. Through God's Spirit, an innocent Jesus sacrificed himself to God, Hebrews 9, 14, after which he was also exalted by the Holy Spirit in Romans 1, 4, 8, 11, 1 Timothy 3, 16, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 19. When he had sat down at the Father's right hand, the Father granted the Spirit to him in such abundance that he could pour out the Spirit upon his apostles in Acts 2, 17 through 33. Scri- scripture speaks of him as the Spirit of Jesus, Acts sixteen seven, the Spirit of Christ, Romans 8, 9, or the Spirit of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1:19. The apostles were equipped for their work by the Holy Spirit as the promised parakletos, which means advocate, helper, intercessor, teacher, comforter, and counselor in John 14, 16, and 26. For the writer of the epistles to the Hebrews, the claim that Scripture originated from God, the Holy Spirit, is so obvious that he frequently cites Scripture with the introductory words, as the Holy Spirit says, in 3, 7, and 9, 8, and ten, fifteen, 15. The Apostle Paul wrote that all Scripture was given by God. There he used a word, theonoustos, a word many will immediately recognize as containing the words theos and pneuma, the Spirit of God. So scripture is the voice of God, the Holy Spirit. Therefore, according to their consciences, the scribes in Jesus' day actually should have agreed with him, but instead they kept on opposing him, going as far as ascribing his miracles to his cooperation with Satan. And what terrible blasphemy that was. And Jesus warned very sternly about it as being the unforgivable sin. Stephen sounded the same warning to the members of the Jewish council. They were acting just like Israel had formerly when some people resisted the Holy Spirit. The writer of the letters to the Hebrews also warned against that sin. Did the readers perhaps wish to crucify the Son of God for a second time? Whoever rejects God's word and thereby opposes the Holy Spirit is lost. And occasionally, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Sanctification because this is His special work. So, with Jesus leaving, the question we need to ask is with Jesus leaving here, and He's talking to His disciples, is He sending a servant to help them? Is He sending a subordinate of His to come and help? He said, Hey, I got this guy that works for me. Is he sending a personal assistant to come and help us? Let's be clear here in our passage today. This is no downgrade from Jesus. This is the very spirit of God who hovered over the waters of creation who is coming here. Jesus is leaving, yes, but God, in fact, is not leaving. In fact, God is going to be with you, and he's going to be in you. And what does that even mean? Well, they're going to find that out. But do you know what it means? All-powerful, omnipotent spirit of God to not only be with us, but to dwell in us. Do you remember that a couple of weeks back when we thought about that beautiful promise that Jesus was going to go and he was going to prepare this place for us to dwell in the father's house? What a beautiful word that is. Dwell, dwell in the house to live with them. This is a word that's just full of comfort, full of unity. It's a great promise that one day we'll dwell at peace in the house of the father. But that doesn't mean that we're only looking forward that's what Jesus wants his disciples to know as he's leaving. Yes, he's going ahead of them. He's preparing a place for them, but they don't only look forward. No, in fact, the spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, he is going to dwell in us until the day that we go and we dwell with the father. What a beautiful picture this is. And when he dwells in us, He will strengthen us in such a personal way that it is, in fact, his strength we use when we do what? Love Jesus and obey his commandments. So don't look to yourself. But realize that you have been given the strength. You just have to rely on God for it. You have to trust in God for it. You have to step out in faith that God is working in your life, and it's his strength. You're you're able to, but not because of you. You're able to because of the Spirit who isn't just present with you. He is actually in you. So the ESV calls the Spirit here the helper, which is kind of a vague term, isn't it? And also, I don't think that the word helper uh, it, just, it doesn't quite do justice to the majesty and the glory of the spirit. Helpers are volunteers in kindergarten classes. <laughs> Helpers are little boys who get the wrenches for their dad when he's working on the car. But the reason is because the Greek word that's here, parakletos or paraklete, it, it's kind of a difficult word for us to translate directly into English. Your, your Bible, in fact, may have a different word there. Uh, than helper. It may, maybe it says counselor, which is an aspect of the word, but that doesn't quite do it justice either, as if he's just waiting there to give us advice uh, so that we can make decisions. Uh, helper, I, I think helper may actually be a better word than counselor, but simply because it's, it is more of a general term. It's more of just a, a wide term. But I do like what the commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism uh, did to describe this word. We read it just a moment ago. It says this word means advocate, helper, intercessor, teacher, comforter, and counselor. So, so yes, in one word, the Spirit is a helper. Sure. But again, just what a weak word to describe what he does and what he is. I mean, he is a helper in the same way that Jupiter is just a rock. I mean, technically, yeah, that's true. But it doesn't do justice To what he really is. I mean, it makes it sound like Jesus is telling the disciples that the one who replaces him is just a pale shadow. Like he's the butler or something that's coming out to help them. And he's just been given this assignment. But that's not what he is. The reality is so much grander. It's so much deeper. Because you and I need so much more than just a little bit of help. We are desperately helpless without any help at all within ourselves. Our hearts are no help because they so often betray us and deceive us. Our strength is no help because at the worst times it's going to fail us. Our minds are no help because our minds will trick us. They will exhaust us and ultimately they will deteriorate like our strength will. We are 100% totally and completely helpless to be what God has made us to be by ourselves. We can't do this. And in that context, the Holy Spirit is our help. Capitalize every word in that statement. In every way, we could contribute nothing So he's our help in the sense that we could do nothing and he could do everything. And so he helped us do everything that we couldn't do. With his existence in us as God himself, all that he is, all that he is able to do because of his divinity, divinity, we are now able to truly and completely be what God has made us to be which is his children, lovers of Jesus. There's no higher calling that you and I have placed on us than to love Jesus. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest calling you and I have. It's what we were made for, and you and I could not possibly do it. Unless... There is this beautiful and precious gift. Did you know, Christian, that you can do it? You can love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you can love others as yourself. You can do all things. Because when Jesus went away, he did not leave us alone. And he did not send the butler, To help us. God, the Holy Spirit, came. And so, Christian, do you realize who your help is here? Your help is the paraclete to strengthen you, to teach you, to open your eyes so that you can actually understand God and know him and understand yourself rightly as well. The Spirit will guide you. He will provide comfort when you're in the pits. And he will speak on your behalf when you are unable to put into words what's happening. He will open your eyes to see the beauty of the words of God. See, this is the beauty of what we're seeing here, right? We we are seeing the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Not just one. And you can't just have one. You must have all because they work in a perfect unity. The Spirit doesn't just come either, like the ghost of Yoda, to just speak to you. That's not what he does either, why? Because God has already spoken through the word. So what will the Spirit do? The Spirit will open your eyes to understand the word that God has already said. Because that's God's intention on how to speak to you and I. So when we come to the word, we come to the word relying on the Spirit. Do you pray before you read scripture that the spirit would open your eyes? Do you pray when you don't understand scripture? And then do you realize that even in scripture, God gives us help there? He gives us one another. And the same spirit that's residing in you is the same spirit that's residing in me. And when we speak words of encouragement and comfort to one another, it is the spirit who is at work. When you desire to pray for someone else, the Spirit is at work. When you desire to encourage somebody else, do you want to see the Spirit at work this week in your life? Then ask how you can love Jesus and obey Him. How you can do what the Word says, and I promise you, you will see the Spirit at work in your life. This is our paraclete. This is the spirit that Jesus asked the Father to send, and he doesn't leave us. Jesus is going to draw this out a lot more in the coming chapters. This is just the first time that we're going to be mentioning the spirit, and in classic John fashion, he's going to circle around the spirit several more times and unpack a little bit more each time. But here, we want to see that he emphasizes that this is the spirit of truth and the world cannot receive him. Let's talk about the last thing here first. The world can't receive the spirit because it doesn't see him or know him. However, the disciples do know him. One question we might ask is why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus say that the disciples do know him despite the obvious confusion of the disciples here? And there's really only one answer that makes sense. Well, why would Jesus say that, that he, he knows him? Because who, who does the disciple, who do, oh, I don't know how to say that sentence. Because the disciples know Jesus. That's why. Think about what Paul says to the Corinthian church. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And then Paul says this, but we have the mind of Christ. So how is it that he's able to say to these disciples who are so obviously confused, you know him because they know Jesus. That's who they know. And that's who we must know. You don't gain access to the Spirit any other way than through Jesus. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they've got this one united plan, one perfectly structured, logical, and ordered plan. And the Creator God, He has spoken to us. He said what that plan is. The Son has to leave the disciples. As crazy as that might sound to the disciples, He has to go because that was His role in the plan. His role is to go, is to die, is to be the substitute, the perfect Passover lamb, because we have a sin problem that's going to take us right to hell. And Jesus has to take that punishment on himself in order for us to be given perfect righteousness so that we can be called sanctified. We can be made holy. So he has to do that. He has to go to the father then and he has to step into this kingship that he has. And yet. In God's generosity, even as Jesus makes us right with God and he goes to prepare a place for the disciples and to rule over the kingdom. God is not just going to leave his followers in the middle of all of this mess until they get there. The equal of the son of God was coming to fulfill that role. The spirit of God. Do you see how God cares for us? How he provides for you, Christian? How he has thought of every single thing that we need, and he's given it to us. We see that in little ways in our own life, but make sure you see that the gospel is the perfect picture of this. God has thought of everything that you need and has abundantly given it, right down to the fact that when the Son goes to be seated at the right hand of the Father, the Spirit comes to dwell in us, (coughs) and this is the truth. This is the one truth. This is the most absolute truth that there is, that God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is our everything. He has made the way for us to live with him eternally. It's his way. It's his truth. It's the only true truth of salvation. Because this is his world. Do you want to know how to, to know the creator of this world? The only creator of this world? Do you, do you want to know how to be right with the creator of this world? Do you want to avoid the condemnation that rightly comes on us in this world, the eternal torment of hell? The spirit of truth comes because there is only one way to know God. And there's no other. There's only one God to know. And he revealed himself to us in scripture as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So Christian, my encouragement to you is you are able to love God and keep his commandments. It may not always feel that way to you. It may be the biggest struggle that you have. It probably is. And there may be days that you are overwhelmed, and there are days that you are burdened, and you feel so condemned because you realize just how far you fall short of loving Jesus and keeping his commandments. Did you know that God has prepared for that? Because it was never gonna be your strength that did it. It was gonna be Jesus making you right, and the Spirit dwelling in you. Do you rely on the Spirit, or are you relying on yourself? Do you look to the Spirit, or do you look to yourself? Do you step out in faith that God will provide what He has promised to provide, or do you stand back because you don't think you have the strength to do it? Do you see what Jesus has done here for us? my encouragement to you, and I want it to be an encouragement. I don't want it to feel like it's heaping burdens on you. I want you to know, for a fact, from the spirit of truth, that you can say the same thing that the apostle John says as an old man, that his laws are not burdensome. His yoke is easy. But you're only gonna be able to say that if you rely on the Spirit and not yourself. And if you step out, whatever you're doing this week, as you think about what does it look like for you to love God this week? What does it look like for you to put your faith in God? Does it look like speaking truth to somebody? Does it look like encouraging somebody? Does it look like taking a stand? for something does it look like putting to death the deeds of some some deed of the flesh in your heart does it look like repenting does it look like asking forgiveness from somebody else and trusting God with the results you see sometimes we don't love God and keep his commandments not just because we don't trust ourselves but we don't trust others We don't trust what would happen if we were to make ourselves vulnerable and ask for forgiveness when we ought to. Don't look to yourself to do what you were never able to do. But look to the spirit and step out in faith and see what God will do. You have no idea how any of those actions are gonna turn out. Maybe you need to tell your neighbor about the gospel this week. Maybe you need to tomorrow when somebody says, how was your weekend? You say, well, let me tell you about what I learned about Jesus. Maybe you need to open up your mouth and proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Maybe you need to give time to someone in serving them and loving them. Maybe you need to encourage and exhort. Maybe you need to take an honest look at your heart. Those are all things that we are called to do. You will not succeed in any one of them on your own strength. And you have no idea though, what God might do if you were to trust in his strength and step out in loving him and obeying him. That's the challenge for us. Do you see that the spirit that was given to you, he wasn't given to you so that you could barely muddle through? He's not the spirit, again, he's not help like the helper in kindergarten. This is the eternal God in you. There's nothing he can't do. And what he does is going to be good. What we say in the psalm is true of the spirit of God. You are good and you always do good. That's the one who dwells in us. Did you know that the one who dwells in you, he will do good? When we we say and we are comforted by the fact that all things work together for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose, for those who are predestined by him, did you know that the spirit who is in you is the one who makes certain that all the things that go on are for your good? You have nothing to fear by obeying Jesus this week. Because you have the Spirit, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord. We we can't we can't grasp the heights and the depths of this gift that you gave of the Spirit, and we can't comprehend it. And Lord. Way too often, we ignore it. To stubbornly try to live for you by ourselves. So Father, would you humble our hearts as we take the Lord's Supper here, we are considering how great the cost was for you to save us. It took the broken body and the shed blood of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God himself. It took his death, his brutal death. It took him taking the wrath, the infinite wrath of sin in order for us to be saved. How could we possibly think that you would do that on our behalf and then not equip us to live for you? So Father, I pray that we would see how you have equipped us this week. And Lord, each one of us, you have placed us in positions where we will have so many opportunities to love you, to love you by serving, to love you by speaking, to love you by denying ourselves, to love you by putting to death, Lord, the sins that are in us. And out of that, we love you. Father, I pray that you would put in front of us all week this week, that what you have called us to do, you have equipped us to do by giving us the eternal spirit what a beautiful thing and lord as we think about how the spirit what he does is he calls us to see christ clearly he calls us to see our king perfectly his condescension he has come so that we might be able to and so may we love our lord and king all the more this week It's in his name we pray, by the power of the Spirit, for the glory of the Father. Amen.